And for a few weeks, I wanted to somewhat symbolically, but also very pointedly, uh, try to extend the season of Thanksgiving. Because for some people, this is just a, it's one day and a couple of days off from work. Um, for a lot of people, this is a vacation week. They travel. We see this regularly here at GIA. Sizable amount of people. Since everybody in Florida is not from Florida, you know that it's a rarity. If you are a Floridian, a true one, my wife is actually one of those, we're going to put your picture up on a wall here because those things are rare. They're probably, they're, you're like dinosaurs. You just never see them, but you sort of know that they existed at one point. right? There is a reality of this, of traveling. And I think what happens is we have so much going on in our world that we forget that Thanksgiving, while we peak it in a t for the time of year, we celebrate it, it's sort of a, a culmination, if you will, of the year for us. It's actually something that God tells us in the scripture should be a pretty normal posture of our heart. So it does us good to remember it, but also to not just remember it in the week when it happens. To remember Thanksgiving or thankfulness is highly thematic. And I want to share with you a, a passage of scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7-11. through It'll be behind me. We'll frame our talk today from this. We're rooted in Ephesians for this morning. But this text in 2 Corinthians really gives us some, some depth, some insight into why what Paul says in Ephesians is so profound and meaningful. 2 Corinthians 4, 7-11, follow along with me. He says, but we have this treasure. And the treasure, what he means here is Jesus and the resurrection. That's exactly what he's talking about here. He says, in jars of clay, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. He says, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned struck down but not destroyed we always carry around in our body the death of jesus this is interesting so that the life of jesus may also be revealed in our body in other words jesus death and resurrection we carry his resurrection we carry that around in us and we do this for the reason that he says right here for we who are alive are always being given over to the death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body in other words Jesus' death and resurrection in us when we believe this when we affirm this when we practice this when we engage him, Jesus' death in us is meant to be a, a bridge to life in him. It's revealed in our mortal bodies. The infinite and immortal is revealed in our mortality. That's a mind blower, isn't it? This is why Paul is so committed to the mission and ministry of God. And it's why we challenge you regularly to be engaged in the same levels. It is too profound a sacrifice for Jesus to, to love us and to die for us like this. To live for us and to come to the earth for us like this. To not then realize that he has given us this great gift. This posture of the heart which should create thankfulness so that we can actually reveal that same gift to others. And that's why this passage is pretty interesting. It's pretty meaningful, because in these verses, the Apostle Paul, in a very transparent way, reminds us of a story common to all people in general, and certainly to his life in particular. That at times, the normal rhythms of our lives that are supposed to give us a sense of fullness in our lives, they're supposed to create thanksgiving in us. Things like, for example, our families, our ministries, our school, our relationships, our vocations, and the litany of things that I haven't even mentioned. And ever, think about the composition of your life. All of those things have the potential to fill us, or on their worst days, to empty us. They can be the, the greatest blessings we have in life, and they can create some of the greatest challenges we have in life. And it's why during times like this, some people, for, the, for them, those things are magnified. They really are celebratory memories. But for others, they can feel alone, they might feel frustrated, they might be discouraged. Uh, if left unchecked, what happens here is the pressures of life, both all physically, spiritually, and emotionally, they can actually break us. And what Paul tells us here in 2 Corinthians is he is this is no stranger to him. That this is this reality is is absolutely something he is he sees as normal in his life. And you can sense this tension in what he wrote in 2 Corinthians. He's sort of like, you know, I'm wrecked but not destroyed, things are hard, but I'm still alive. It's this seesaw going back and forth. 
of how, how he is enduring and persevering. And the verses we read from Ephesians, they are a nice complement to this. Because those verses, we read them in a heated room this morning, but Paul wrote them in a prison cell. So this verse, Corinthians and Ephesians, they're pretty profound. Because this is a guy who really gave his whole life to the mission of Jesus Christ. And that is why we often reference him in this room. He's exemplary in some critical areas, the values of our church, good gospel theology. He gets Jesus, the Jesus of the scripture, and he wants other people to get Jesus. He gets community. He is the guy that started the churches that we pattern our churches after. He understood what it meant to, to be a person in the body of Christ who receives much, consumes from God. We let God pour into us, but we also recognize that we are to contribute to the kingdom of God and God's people. This balance of receiving and giving. He nails this, and he is without question the architect of mission in the New Testament. We're all around because of what he did, because God put his hand on him and used it. Now what's interesting here is we look to Paul at times as this juggernaut of the faith, but what is often, at least in my opinion, overlooked is this characteristic I want to pick up on today that we introduced last week. He is also a guy who is notably known for being thankful in all circumstances. I'm not saying this was a naive thankfulness. I'm not saying that he was not challenged or stressed in his soul. That happens. I read in, uh, earlier this week in 2 Corinthians, just in my private devotional time, there's this place where Paul is writing to the church of Corinth, and he says, you know, God opened doors, but I was still stressed. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. What he's saying is like, I'm seeing God do great things, and I'm still a little stressed in my soul. Does that sound like maybe a Wednesday for us at times, where we know God is present in our lives, and he's using us or using the circumstances in our lives, but we still maybe don't feel like we are as put together or as orderly as we would like to be. Maybe we are struggling physically, spiritually, or emotionally. It's in the midst of that mess of life, the beautiful mess of life, that he tells us, I'm crushed but not in despair. I'm persecuted but I'm not abandoned. I'm struck down but I'm not destroyed. He is able to be thankful. He is able to be a person who praises God during the challenges of life. Thanksgiving is more than turkey in scripture. It is actually, although I love turkey, don't get me wrong, it's actually something that is meant to be a posture of our heart that we live out every day of our lives. And so today we're going to continue talking about this heart attitude of being thankful, which we started last week. And Paul's teaching here provides some of the most direct and practical guidelines for Christian living in the whole Bible. It truly is a gospel-centered roadmap, showing us how to find and live in this state of thankfulness because of the great gift of Jesus. And I just give you this introduction because Paul is clearly qualified to give us a teaching like this, since his life is regularly marked by hardship, yet he learns to dwell on the hope and grace of God in them, and that changes his whole demeanor. And the reason Paul lives like this, the reason he is constantly filled up, is because he knows what to look towards. He knows what to focus his attention on. He knows where the eyes of his heart are supposed to be gazing. He keeps his eyes on the prize and the promises of Christ, no matter what he faces. And this is the foundational idea, the foundational truth that informs an attitude of thanksgiving. And it is the first truth, officially, we will look at this morning. So if you want your life to be defined by thanksgiving, which is our hope, should be, you must focus on who God is and what he has done. This is the foundation of thanksgiving. It doesn't begin with circumstantial analysis. It begins with analyzing, head, heart, and hands, who God is and what he has done for us. And Paul says this in Ephesians 1.3. He gives us this pretty powerful statement. He says, praise be to God. Remember, I'm in the jail cell. Praise be to the, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. That's how he opens this letter. And what we see here is that in, in a challenging time, it's only when we focus our attention on praising God 
that we'll realize he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. That's where Paul's looking, and that's where we should be looking. Now, let me explain what I mean by this. Paul, if you study his epistles, he's, he's got a certain structure he writes with. He's actually one of, in my opinion, he's one of the easiest people to follow in the New Testament because he is so orderly in the way that he writes. But unless you know some of his rhythms, like maybe you have a favorite author and you, you've learned to pick up on the way they write, uh, Paul does the same thing. And it's well worth, as you study the scripture, to look at these rhythms because he's usually doing some pretty intentional things in the way that he writes. And here he writes this in chapter 1. We're only looking at a handful of verses today. But in, in chapter 1 he writes this very lengthy and theologically rich sentence that starts in verse 3, the one we just read. Now, in your English translation, there's periods and commas and all that's punctuated. But in the Greek, the original Greek anyways, it was not written that way. What's happening here is we've broken this up to make it read like English so we can understand it. However, in the Greek, verses 3 through 14 are not punctuated like that. They're really bad English. It's one very, very long run-on sentence. Imagine sort of if, if like you wrote a paper in school and you wrote a 14-sentence paragraph without any uh, periods or commas or anything. Essentially what happens there is you would have what they know is known as a run-on sentence, a big long one. And it, is, it really defeats the point of how you're trying to write. Here, though, Paul does something very different. I, and I honestly think what's happening here is, this is my speculation, but I think it's a good one. I think what happened is, is as he started writing about this, he just couldn't stop. In other words, he got so excited about who God is and the blessings that he had shown him in his life that he just wrote until he stopped writing. And we get this incredibly long, like, dump session in a good way of how Paul recognizes God's blessings in his life. And when you read it like that, you get the impression that Paul went into a Thanksgiving feeding frenzy, trying to explain to us what God has done for him. It's like he started writing, but he couldn't stop. In the same way you might brag about your children as you're excited, it's the same thing. And in a few moments, we're going to look at the two ways, we'll get back into the message will be this, that God has lavished us in his blessing in this passage. But before doing so, it's important that we understand what the Bible means when it says that God wants to bless us. A lot of these terms we look at each week require clarification because there are radically different understandings, the way the scripture writes about them and the way we use them in culture. We talked about holiness a few weeks ago. Very different opinions, even in the Christian church, on what that means. Now, the way we use the term to bless today is very different than the meaning that it has in the New Testament. And today it carries the general idea of, of wishing somebody well. That's what it means to, to bless somebody. Like when you say, oh, bless her heart or his heart. Or, you know, God, God bless you when somebody sneezes. Or if you're under 30, hashtag blessed. I saw a ton of that this past week, right? Blessed and thankful, hashtag and all over the place, right? All over the place. None of these uses are wrong, but they are absolutely incomplete. Because in God's economy, blessing has a much deeper and richer meaning. When that far exceeds the boundaries of just wishing somebody well after they sneeze or tweeting something. It refers to God's unique and all-powerful ability to bring about something pretty profound in our life, a, a richness in our lives for those who are in Christ. Because according to Paul here, God's given us an unrivaled set of spiritual resources that come directly from his throne in heaven for this life and the next. That's what it means to be blessed by God. God opens heaven and dumps the full force and power of all that he is in his son Jesus and through his Holy Spirit. He pours that into your life. Spiritual blessings. That's what it means. He's lavished us with himself. And so you see, to be blessed by God means that in Jesus, God has graciously supplied your heart and mind, your soul and mind, with every joy and benefit you need to flourish on earth. That's why Paul has joy and thanksgiving in a difficult circumstance. Even better, Paul tells us this kind of blessing is a past tense event. When you are in Jesus, he has already poured this out into your life. It's a profound reality that should define an utter state of thanksgiving in our lives. 
And so while we want to celebrate the turkey, we want to make sure that Jesus is better than turkey, much more. Because what we try to evoke at the Thanksgiving table is actually something God says he would prefer to see normally lived out in the everyday rhythms of our life. Now, maybe you're here saying, this is wonderful. It sounds good. I love the idea of being thank, thankful in a hilarious life. That sounds good, Anthony. But, uh, but the reality is, is that some days I'm not thankful. And maybe you're in a season right now where you're not at all. How do you actually get to the place where this becomes a reality in life? Well, there's an answer to that. It's a short answer, but it's an answer that I don't share it shortly because of, of being terse or trying to be brief here. As much as I want us to know, it requires us to have a foundational heart attitude. There's a discipline, if you will, we have to practice in order to see Thanksgiving in our lives. The key to being thankful in your life is learning to deeply focus on God's goodness in your life. You've got to start the epistle of your life by looking to your Father in heaven and saying, God, here's why you are a good God and a great God. When you start focusing on that, you're going to see that Thanksgiving becomes more natural. Because you are starting your very, your very day, your first breath, is focusing for a few moments on who God is and what he has done for you. This, however, is a challenging thing for a lot of people to do. Because it requires a self-realization that Thanksgiving in life isn't, here's the thing, is it isn't something you have to claw your way to, which is what most of the promises in Scripture have become for some people. We look at them and we say, how do I get to that place? The truth is, with the great promises of the gospel, you sort of have to let Jesus unleash those things in your heart. In other words, he's given us these promises because we can't claw our way to them. Utter thanksgiving. Thanksgiving in the, in the economy of God is not something we can migrate towards. It's something we have to let God build in us. It's, it's the recognition of what he's done. And so scripture is saying no matter what you're going through or feeling, the reality of our situations in life, ultimately, no matter what they are, is that we have already been given everything we need in Jesus to be thankful. That's the starting point. And so if you're here today struggling with something, if you've had the best Thanksgiving this week or the worst one, I want to encourage you to think about what it means to pray for God to bless you. And what if, what if like some of the other great promises of the scripture, what we need to do is stop praying for God to provide us these things, since he's already said he did. And what if we sort of go into God saying things like, help me to more fully understand why I'm not experiencing these things. You know, you've said you've blessed me. You said I should be joyful. You said I should have these things. Why is it that on some days or most days, I don't feel this way? Because according to Paul, he's already given us this in Jesus, to the point where it should naturally create a spirit of thanksgiving. That is the bullseye of the way God wants us to, to pursue him. But it would be naive for us to sit here thinking that this is not challenging for us at times. And what makes the application of this truth hard for some of us is that following Jesus requires something that is a bit of a waning commodity in our world today. It requires clarity, consistency, and focus. That is what it means to pursue Jesus. With a clear mind, a consistent heart, and a focused life, we are trying to devoutly follow Jesus Christ. And we're trying to do this at a time where we live in a culture that is increasingly focusing on everything. And in some ways, I've said this before, it seems to me like scattering is what is more valuable today. The scattered life is more important than the focused life. There's a couple of examples I want to give you that show you this. The first is the most obvious one. If you start reading sort of the, the condition of humanity, it's, it's undeniable now that there is, by, by medical diagnosis, an incredible uptake. What is known now as a bit of an ADHD epidemic in our culture. We are living in a world where attention spans are shortening. We're essentially hardwired around television now. 
you know, we have a couple of minutes of focus and a commercial break, or we don't even have to do that anymore because now with Hulu, you can pay 12 bucks and not even have commercials. So everything is geared about around our consumption of media, which is changing the way our brains work. There's some interesting sociology on this. And then when you marry this with some of the, again, we're not against social media here. I've said this before, it's a valuable tool, but it has beginning to have an effect on our lives. There's an interesting book I'm reading right now by a, a PhD named Gene Twenge, who's saying we have 20 years of research now and we're beginning to look at what some of the challenges are, what some of the blessings, if you will, and challenges are of the social media revolution. In other words, it's the first time we have enough scientific data to say this is changing the way we think a little bit, good and bad. Look at friendship, look at Facebook. You know, you're, this is a, a, new, a new kind of culture that's been ushered into our world. It used to be that you had a handful of friends that you could actually hang out with or borrow $5 from, that was called friendship. But today you likely have 1,200 plus friends and a couple of weird people trying to sell you stuff on Facebook who are constantly you know, bombarding you with information online. They, they friend you and they don't want to talk to you after you accept the friend request. That's what friend, friendship has become in some circles. It's a really scattered understanding of relationship. Well, here's another example. Uh, I shared this with you in the first year of restoration because it's probably the, the clearest example I saw of this in our area. Uh, and I think it was like 2011, give or take a little bit. I was uh, driving around Daytona and I saw what I would consider to be a cardinal lack of focus in the business world. Now, if you have any type of an entrepreneurial bend, if you are in business, and this is even true of our church, we, we attribute some of who we are to, to being really focused on a particular set of, a particular vision and a set of values. Meaning, we sort of want to identify who we are, and we live our lives around that. And business is similar, very similar. And good leaders know that when you scatter yourself in a million directions, in, in the business world, it likely will make your business unsuccessful. In other words, there's no focus. And I witnessed this firsthand a while back. In a, it was a snow cone business. It was kind of funny that I thought clearly missed the, the point of this. In front of the store, it was, a, it was a store dedicated to selling nothing but snow cones. On, in front of the store was this big marketing sign that said, Bikers Welcome. Okay, now I want you to think about this for a moment since we just had Biketoberfest here. It didn't make any sense to me when you think about snow cones because let's just say this was like business class 101. And I was saying, Guys, what do you think our primary demographic for snow cones is? And you in the back of the room said, bikers, bikers. Probably not the case, right? You think of like T-ball leagues, families with small kids, Boy Scouts, that kind of stuff. And it, it really, I was sort of, sort of telling this story in my head because I was processing it. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I just couldn't bring myself to believe that let's just say maybe in Iowa, there were two bikers, you know, like all tatted up and leathered up. And one said to the other, hey man, uh, in about two weeks, I'm thinking about taking a trip to Daytona on my Harley. And the biker buddy said to him, uh, oh, it must be for, for bike week, right? And that biker said, no, not at all. And then he said again, the other biker, he said, well, clearly it's gotta be Biketoberfest. That's like the second biggest thing that goes on there. That's why you're taking your bike right there. Nah, that's not why I'm going to Daytona, man. Spring break, right, it's gotta be spring break. That's the third biggest thing where you bring your bike down here? No, probably not. I'm confused, man. He says, what are you coming to Daytona for? Snow cones, right? I'm coming for snow cones. Really a bit out of sorts, right? Sell the snow cones to the bikers, but I went by six months later and that place was not there anymore. Likely because the bikers only come three times a year and they don't buy snow cones. So listen, it's a perfect example. Whether it's our relationships, our pursuit of Jesus, friends and families, the church world, no matter what it is in life, the business world, a lack of focus is eventually going to hurt you. You can't run after everything in life. In doing so, you run after nothing. And if we want to be thankful like God promises us that we can be here, we have to know that to a certain degree, I do think the Bible calls us to, to prepare for a bit of a battle. This idea of highly focused pursuit is a contrarian idea in many sectors of our world. Not all of them, but in many of them. 
and it has created a bit of a spiritual attention deficit disorder where God becomes one of many things a person looks to is sort of an add-on in the quest to find meaning and purpose in life everything begins to trump God when we think this way because at the end of the day I, I like to say God is a gentleman and God will not reprimand you like your boss will God will not you know scream at you like your children will. those things have immediate effects on our lives and if we don't let God define the focus in those areas what likely happens is we will be drug and towed to those areas we look to many things as opposed to God being the ultimate thing we try to find thankfulness in or give thanksgiving for and here's what this tends to look like in the life of the believer we connect to God for a brief moment in a worship gathering on Sunday only to have him drowned out by the demands of life on Monday we get serious about scriptural study and prayer but only when the crises of life force us to we're focused for a very short season or we want to stay focused on God but our feelings our friends our commitments our health our jobs our family our plans whatever they are always seem to elbow their way back into the center of our hearts consequently elbowing God out it's sort of like a rugby match and over time what happens here is faith is not consistent think of your life uh, or think of your faith like uh, you ever see a knotted ball of yarn that's sort of what faith starts looking like in our lives it's a knotted ball of yarn thrown on top of them rather being the single thread that runs through everything we do defining life bringing peace comfort and order to our lives and everything we do I promise you when you seek God devoutly he will bring clarity to your life that's what he promises he'll do and so if your faith is like this a knotted ball you have to know you'll you'll miss out on the reality that God is with you you will never experience to the degree Paul wants us to experience the praise and Thanksgiving that he tells us about here you will not be able to focus on God in a way that you can actually feel that physically spiritually and emotionally but on the contrary we see what happens when people do when Paul, Paul's at this place where he recognizes he's been bathed in some immense spiritual blessings and this leads me to the second truth Paul says we need to focus on in order to have Thanksgiving in our heart if you focus on who God is and what he has done for you and let God do the heavy lifting in your life to be thankful you have to know there is an immediate promise connected to that when you focus on God's goodness in your life he promises to lavishly pour his grace out on you this is the second thing he tells us here Ephesians 1 4 through 8 I'll reread these verses he says for like here's the driving thrust for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight in love he says he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one who he loves in the one he loves think about the run-on list of God's goodness right Paul's just writing all of these things about God in him he goes on to say we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sin in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us he just writes in an, in an untamed way about the amazing things God has done for us and the love he's shown us and the key thing that stands out to me here is that Paul tells us before the foundations of the earth were laid God desired to lavish us in the riches of his grace before there even was any of this like we know it we see that God's love was so deep for us that he chose to create us and if you understand the story of creation and fall you realize how cosmically expensive this decision was for God God chose to create us despite the fact that he knew we would sin against him I mean think about this the cost to have us around was well known to God before we were even around he knew we'd break the bond we had with him in heaven and destroy the peace we have with each other on earth he knew that our sin would eventually cost him his son on the cross that's where creating us goes yet because of his love for us he still didn't need 
but desire relationship with us. And to me, that word is much better than need. You know, that's a pretty powerful word. God desired relationship with us, so he created us. And this passage teaches us something beautiful about God that has a rich Thanksgiving implication in our lives. No matter what your week was like or what the weeks will be like, you and I have never been an afterthought in the mind of God or in the heart of God. We have never been a secondary priority. His actions constantly reveal that you and I matter to him in very deep and significant ways by his nature of creating us and redeeming us when we failed him. And this is why Paul tells us it's always been God's plan, pleasure, and will to call us back to a meaningful relationship with him in Jesus. That makes God happy when we turn away from a life away from God and trust in his son Jesus to pursue God. That brings joy to our Father in heaven. The scripture tells us like heaven throws a party when we come to Jesus. And it's a party that continues to be thrown in our lives. Because not only do we get to this place where we can know God deeply, but Paul goes on to tell us there are some benefits connected to this. Two lavish benefits connected to being in Jesus. And this is sort of how we'll begin to wrap up this morning. Paul says adoption and security. These are the two amazing things God promises you in his son. Now, let me be clear here. Paul doesn't just list adoption and security because they're, all, they're the only things that God blesses us with. I want you to think of these two words like this. He mentions them, I think, because out of these two graces, every other spiritual blessing we can give thanks for flows. It's sort of like he's saying, and we can see this in his writing, there are many ways God lavishes us in his love. Uh, so many so that they really cannot be listed all, all listed. But these are like the mother and father of blessing, meaning like out of these two things, the conception of all blessing flows. And when you understand them, they will change you at the core of who you are and fill you with an attitude of thanksgiving. Now, to lavish something literally means to pour something out on something in abundance. So when we talk about sonship, daughtership, and security, what this means is God is like drowning us in this stuff. In abundance, it's like a never-ending bucket that he keeps pouring out on us. And in this passage, the lavish grace that God wants to pour out on us is through adoption and security. And what they show us is that God wants us to be connected to him very deeply and very intimately. He wants our faith to be like a common thread that binds our lives together in Jesus. So let's look at these two reasons we should be thankful for. First, he says that be thankful in Jesus because God lavished us in his grace by adopting us into sonship with him. This is the foundation of the blessing. And the language of adoption is very important to me because I have adopted a child. And you know as a church we value adoption here. There's a very serious physical reality to the spiritual gift that we read about in the Bible. And that is why it is one of the clearest analogies God uses to describe our salvation and relationship with him in the Bible. The metaphor is steeped in taking a person who has been deemed an orphan, a societal outcast with no real family or advocate to stand up for them and protect them in the world. And then inviting them to live in a family forever. It takes, no pun intended, the orphaned and roots them in a permanent home. That's what physical adoption does. And spiritual adoption is the same thing. It's a place where we are now, we move from being essentially unconditionally rejected to being unconditionally accepted and granted a stability in life that we've never had before. This is the language Paul talks about here when he speaks of our relationship with God. And this is how the Bible describes our salvation experience. That before Jesus lavished us in this adoptive grace, we were disconnected spiritual orphans without a heavenly father. However, in Christ, we are no longer fatherless. In fact, adoption into God's family is the antithesis to what it means to be an orphan. 
Because simply put, the once fatherless now have an unrivaled, unlimited, unprecedented access to our God, our Father in heaven. Now, I want to share an illustration with you because I think it's one of the better ones, and it makes sense in American culture, but I need to caveat it. Um, I came across it in my studies this week, and it's an illustration uh, that I think will help us to understand this dynamic regarding the, the presidency in our country. This is not a political spiel here. I just need to say this, this is a pretty tumultuous time in American politics. So I need you to remove all that baggage for a moment, if you would, and focus on the presidency, the office of itself. Because it is, without question, the highest authority we have in the land that we live in. Okay, so no political subtext here. Think about presidency in general. This week in my studies, I came across an old illustration that explained this by talking about the office of the president. And imagine for a moment that you are a child of the president, okay, of the United States of America. That's the role I want you to take on you. Uh, many people in our country, I met the mayor of New York once, which was awesome. I mean, my grandmother like drug me through a parade crowd to shake his hand, and that was pretty powerful for me. Uh, but to meet the president is like on a whole new level, because first of all, you, even if you made an appointment, the chances are you'd never get there. And for a great many people, if they try to get there, they're gonna be subdued. Like you, that is just an inaccessible position in our world, less, uh, except for a handful of people. And it's so serious that, as you know, there's a whole division of people called the Secret Service that makes sure nobody ever gets to see the president unless it's actually permitted. And they will take your life if need be. That's how serious it is. And so this whole group of people dedicate themselves to making this a position of exclusivity for good reason. It's a pretty dangerous place to be. Now, in light of that, I want you to think about you as a, uh, an average person trying to walk into the White House on Sunday you know, and see the president or any other elected official. Uh, think about how difficult that would be for you. It's impossible, actually. But then think about what it would be like if you were the son or the daughter of a president or a standing official. It changes, right? I mean, you don't need an appointment to see that person. Uh, in fact, in the case of the presidency, you would likely just be able to go by the guards. They would not think twice about stopping you. Why? Because there's a privilege assigned to you because of sonship or daughtership. You are relationally privileged in that dynamic. That allows you this access to a person who is inaccessible. And the same privilege exists with our Heavenly Father, for those who are in Christ. And this relationship is a major theme in Scripture. It is a major thing we should be giving thanks for at all times. It teaches us that God is not a remote being we observe from afar. He is an up-close God. Abba is literally the idea of Daddy. That's what it means in the Bible. And what this means is that there is nothing, there's nothing that can actually keep us from Him. Even our sin, when we repent, has been dealt with. Jesus has taken this stuff for us so that we can run into the arms of our Father in Heaven. Nothing should ever keep us from approaching God. He's designed His relationship with us that way. So the question then becomes, when we think about what we can be thankful for, if God has made us sons and daughters of Him, the question becomes, are we actually taking advantage of that? Do you have access to the greatest office on, on Earth in the history of civilization as we know it? We can open that door. It's unlocked at all times. Do we do that? Because if we do not do that, there's a really strong chance that we might re deeply misunderstand what it means to be thankful. It is likely that something else is trumping the thanksgiving structure of our heart. If we cannot stop and meditate on the fact of what it means for God to have given his son up for us so that we can be called sons and daughters. If you're disconnected from God's presence like that, it is very like likely that your thanksgiving meter might be a little off. So ask that question. Do you see God as your father in heaven? and live in a way that relationally validates that. That's the first thing Paul says. Sonship, daughtership. Secondly, he says we can be thankful because being a son or daughter of God means God has lavished us with security, unrivaled security in life. There is safety in this. 
Now, I'm not saying you all are weak and need to be protected, but I am saying God provides a physical, spiritual, and emotional safety and unrivaled security when we connect with him like this. Deeply connected to the idea of sonship in the ancient world is inheritance. This is even true today. You know, my grandfather passed away four months ago. I shared this last week, and I helped my mom navigate that whole legal process. And there is something ingrained, especially in the Western, the Western world, about sonship or daughtership and inheritance. When you are a son or a daughter of a father, at least when the cylinders are firing correctly and it's a healthy relationship, the privilege of sonship is that you have access to the whole kingdom, to the security and stability of what it means to, to know the king, or in this case, the father. And the truth here is that once you are sealed in God's love, this is the inheritance, the inheritance God has sealed you in his love permanently. There is nothing, a circumstance, a failure, that can threaten the inherited love your Father in heaven has shown you in Jesus. Because God's love for you, I said this two weeks ago, is based solely on Jesus' perfect, obedient love for you on the cross. That's the foundation of God's love for you. And you can't change that. We can mar it up, sure. But you cannot change that. That is God's fixed love on us. That's what it means to be holy. God sets his love on us because God is holy. Now let me explain this another way. Let me give you another relational example here. Think about this truth from the angle of, of two relationships. The first is a relationship an employee has with their boss. Maybe you are an overseer in a, in a workplace or you work for one, whatever it is, we've all worked. So we understand the construct of boss and worker. And the second is the relationship a child has with his father, son or daughter. In the workplace, the tolerances for being asked to do something and not doing it right are typically much tighter than in your family, right? I mean, you might get, especially in a high stress environment, a handful of chances at a task before you might actually be removed from it if you mess it up. Because productivity is at the end of the day. That's what people want in the workplace. And there's something good about that, for sure. We don't want to encourage negligence in work, but we do want to recognize that it's a much shrewder, con more, more shrewd construct in the home. And this is because the premise of a working relationship is a boss to, employ to an employee. We sort of expect it to be that way. The relationship is built on a utilitarian structure. Now think about how differently your expectation of that scenario would be in a home between a father and a child. If you are in a management position, or maybe have served under a manager, think of what it would look like if you applied like solely management techniques to the parenting construct. What if I told you over lunch that I came to the very difficult but necessary conclusion that I had to kick my seven-year-old daughter Addie out of the house? And you would say, man, what happened? Like, what went on there? And I said, well, listen, on five separate occasions, I asked her to clean her room, and she just couldn't get it done. And then, I'm a good boss. I provided her a PIP, performance improvement plan. And I worked with her on the five ways she could clean her room. I offered that to her, but she rejected it. So then, I did the only sensible thing a father could do. I had her pack her bags with some clothes and some food, and I dropped her off at the Voltran bus stop behind the Walmart, because that's just the way the Ozos roll. Hashtag blessed, right? <laughs> if I did that, you would say, that is crazy. Totally crazy. You would likely say, even if you wouldn't verbalize it, you'd think that's really bad fathering. That's really bad parenting at that point in life, right? For taking such an extreme measure with my daughter. Because those of you who are parents, or have parents, which is everyone in this room, know that long-suffering and everlasting patience are kind of par for the course with you kids. Now granted, as parents, some days long-suffering and patience are shorter than others. Some days it's like midterm suffering is the way I like to describe it. But at the end of the day, good parents are striving to be something for their kids. It's a different relationship than a boss usually is. A boss has a minimal patience with an employee. They're demanded to have that. But you will suffer for an attorney with your kids. 
because you're not just their boss, you're the parent. There is an inheritance there that matters to you and to them. They're your flesh and blood. As a parent, you can choose to unconditionally love your kids before you even hold them. You just know you're gonna love them, and that love grows over time. But no matter what happens, what's beautiful about this idea is that this is how God loves us in Jesus. Before we were even born, he loved us. Knowing full and well the grief and the hardship we would cost him, he loved us, and he birthed us, he, he made us. He loves you and I, here's the implication of this. This is why we can be secure in him. He loves you and I in the days we don't wanna love him, on the days we cannot love him, and on our worst days, the days we won't love him. God's love still does not change for us. He's loved you and I before the foundations of time, and that isn't going to change because you've been adopted in Jesus. And that doesn't mean I'm encouraging these behaviors. I'm just saying you have to know that you are fixed in Jesus because you are fixed in Jesus. That's the way that that works. And that true statement is what I want to leave you with this morning. So let's remember that for some, Thanksgiving is a great week of the year. It's a wonderful holiday. For the Christian, though, it has to be much, much more than that. It's meant to be a state we live in, an attitude of the heart, all fueled by the reality that God has lavished us in his grace. So this morning, ask yourself, if you're truly thankful, when you think of your life, is it sort of filled with bickering and negativity, subtle or aggressive critique, or is it really defined by the fact that you can look at all things in life and learn to see the goodness of God in them? Can you stay that spirit that often tries to trump us in life? Can you stay the spirit that seeks to drag us into bitterness, anger, a lack of being able to forgive, a loss of love for us? Can you push that stuff aside and learn even in the most difficult of situations to see them as God does? That's what it means to be thankful. That's what it means to be lavished in the grace of God. So ask yourself today, are you truly thankful? If you're not, ask God to enhance that, to, to restore it maybe, that attitude in your life, if you want to experience it more deeply. Ask God to labor in your life to bring about a posture of thanksgiving. And as we remove to, to response time, and we're going to have a very brief uh, part of our response time, we'll just be singing the closing lines of good to me this morning. I want to sort of leave us this morning at a time of worship. Use this time we have. Meditate on who God is in your life, on what he has done for you, and then sing out at the top of your lungs the reality that God is good to you. Ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you today, and what are you going to do about it?